preaching of God's word then is in 1 Peter chapter 1 and there at verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. Speaking of Jesus Christ as noted in verse 7, Peter then writes, Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Notice the thought continues into the next verse, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That is, it is the expectation that though we are saved, we're looking for the final deliverance that is to come. But we wish to focus particularly on verse 8. And it's interesting how Peter is describing believers. There are many ways to describe believers, and the scriptures are full of different ways of doing so. In fact, this very chapter has a number of them as well. But notice in this passage that Peter speaks of them, particularly at this time, as he writes to those scattered abroad, that they are those who have not seen Jesus Christ and yet love him. And so though Peter had been privileged to see the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples to whom Peter was writing at this time had not. And indeed, we can say that the, the, the mass majority of believers have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly none of us today and the intervening time between Peter and ourselves. And yet it is said that these believers love him. And this love then, you'll notice, leads to a rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so this is one way of describing believers. He's testifying of a truth regarding them. Notice he's not speaking of specific and exalted believers, but rather to those who are scattered abroad, to believers of every type, as it were, throughout the churches in these various places of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, those who are, verse 2, chosen, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, those who have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he's speaking of believers universally. So he's not speaking of a class of believers like apostles. He's not speaking of a particular region, but he's speaking of believers universally, that those who believe, notice verse 8, yet believing, are those who love And those who love because believing are those who rejoice. So what we see here is Peter's testimony that believers may be described as those who believing love Christ and loving Christ rejoice in Christ and do so in such a degree as here Peter says that the rejoicing is with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, there's much in this verse that we can't dive into, but in the Lord's providence, as we particularly expect, and his kindness to gather on the Lord's day for the Lord's Supper, this provides us something to assist us in our own personal self-examination. And so the believer is to examine himself to see if he's in the faith. He's to examine himself to uh, ensure that he comes eating and drinking uh, not as worthy because none of us are worthy, and Paul doesn't say that. 
but that they wouldn't come unworthily partaking, that their partaking would be in the right way. And to do that, there's a benefit to examining ourselves that we can discern, are we in the faith? Are we not in the faith? If we're in the faith, if we're believers and thus have a right to the Lord's Supper, how are we? Are we healthy? Are we unwell? Are we growing? Are we backsliding? Where are our needs? Where are our graces growing and abounding? Because what this does by God's grace is it further draws our souls to long for more of Christ and by Christ for more of his graces to enrich our souls. And so this evening, we come to consider then this love that characterizes believers. And we can then take that and consider, is that true of me? I might say I'm a believer, but is it true that I fit this description? Is it true that I'm one who, though I see not Christ, yet now I believe in Christ and love Christ, and in loving Christ, I rejoice in Christ, and so on? Well, consider then three things. Firstly, who is loved? Secondly, who it is that loves? And thirdly, several points of application. So firstly, who is loved? And secondly, who it is that loves? Well, both of these are fairly obvious, and yet we can look at them with some degree of greater clarity to help us uh, reflect upon and benefit as the Lord blesses by this passage. So first, who is it that is loved? Well, notice that Peter uses this word whom, which then refers back to Jesus Christ. So this is a pronoun that's linking the two together. So he's introduced this topic, verse 7, and what a description it is of our faith. Think of this for a moment. The trial of your faith, verse 7, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. That if you know that you have faith, You have that which exceeds in a greater way than we can imagine. Peter's saying much more exceeds the riches of gold because gold perishes. It tells us something of faith. Faith doesn't perish. Where there's true faith, it's a gift of God that shall never be taken back. We can't, if having true faith, lose faith. Now the believer may have seasons of doubt and backsliding and other such things. But if everyone truly believes, such is the gift of God given, that it is not taken back. And to be assured of that, the testing of it, which then reveals the reality of it, were brought to realize the great riches that exceed the best riches of the world. And it is so, in addition to many other things, because it will be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now notice this link in the text. Peter's just introduced the appearing of Jesus Christ. There's a coming appearance. Christ will be seen. We will see him. There's a day when every eye shall behold him. But then he comes back, whom having not seen. So you'll notice that the one who is loved, having not seen ye love, is Jesus Christ. 
Now think of just generally what's presented simply in that name and title, Jesus Christ. That name is of such precious nature to the believer that the more we reflect upon it, the more we draw from it. It's not like those sticks of gum you place in your mouth and chew on them and then they lose their flavor and you're looking, how can I get rid of it? But the more that you take in the truth of Christ, the more you find satisfying and delightful truths regarding who and what he is. Well, children, remember that in Matthew's gospel, it's the angel that says, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now, this is a name very familiar to us because of the Bible. And in some languages, you'll find that even used today as names of other people. It is, of course, related to the Hebrew Joshua. And both names relate to Jehovah who saves, or it can be Jehovah is salvation, but it links the two together. This is Jehovah and he saves. He is salvation. And so you remember Matthew 1.21, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. This is Jesus. And so when we think of who it is that's loved, we can say the one who is loved by believers is the appointed Savior. It's the one whom the Father had appointed to be the Savior of his chosen ones. Notice the title that's used, Christ. This, of course, is that word which refers to his anointed, uh, his being anointed. He is the Messiah. And you'll see this theme come up in various ways as he is the king that's mentioned in uh, 1 Peter. He's the priest as well mentioned in 1 Peter. And he's also the one who even here notice uh, it speaks of verse 11 that the prophets spoke by the spirit of Christ. He's the chief prophet that is guiding and leading his people. And so it is that here we have the anointed one. He's the anointed savior. You know, his prophet, he instructs us in the will of God for our salvation. He discloses what otherwise would be hidden from us. And oh, what a horrible thing it would be to be without the true revelation of the way of salvation. But what is Christ? He's the one anointed to declare and open to us the way of salvation. None other could say as he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. What he's doing, if you could imagine it, is he's taking the light and shining it upon himself and saying, look, I'm the one who's been anointed and appointed to save. He is the priest anointed after the order of Melchizedek. And as he stands, not only offering up earthly sacrifices, but that which exceeds them, offering up himself. He doesn't do that somehow resting the uh, uh, ability from his father. He does one as appointed by the father, anointed by the father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Christ opening the scroll and saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. 
rolling it back up. And oh, with what breathtaking beginning of a sermon he starts, that truly this word is fulfilled in your ears. What I've just read, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. It's a, he's upon me. He's appointed me to these things. Is fulfilled. I am the one anointed to this end to offer up myself as that sacrifice that should save. He is Christ the King. And oh, what a blessed thought to meditate upon each and every day. That every day we arise. Our king has not slept, neither has he grown weary. And he's not just directing this little piece and that little piece, but he is above everything that is and directing all things. Now understand, he's directing all things to his appointed end, which is glorifying himself and blessing his people. It's an amazing truth as you read through the scriptures, the history that's recorded that it touches upon some of the greatest empires the world has ever known, which still call for study from uh, various facets of universities and research departments today. So you think of the Egyptians and uh, the Greeks and the Romans, uh, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, all these great empires, and yet they're only brought into attention with reference to their relationship to the far superior kingdom. Now, it's good and profitable for us to study history. It's beneficial for us to be students of that. But the Christian should remember that all history that's being orchestrated right now is fundamentally orchestrated by our king for the glory of his king and uh, of his kingdom and of those in his kingdom. This is our king who is ruling and defending us, who is subduing us to himself and protecting us from his and our enemies. This is the anointed Savior. Notice the general context shows that he is likewise the actual Savior. In other words, it's not only in our time that he was appointed and anointed, but by the time that Peter has written this, he has saved. And so notice in verse 2, it speaks of his redeeming work, that he Uh, was the one who was uh, sprinkling them by the blood of Jesus Christ, his blood applied to them. He sanctifies them unto obedience and he glorifies, as it is verse 3 and elsewhere, that it is they are unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, Peter's not writing to believers who are anticipating Christ to accomplish salvation. He's writing to believers who have believed upon one who has accomplished salvation. There were facets of it, as there still are, which are yet to be fully realized, namely the appearing of Christ Jesus and the glory that is to come. But there are other parts that have been uh, applied already and namely the cleansing of our sins and the ongoing work of sanctifying us. In other words, Christ is not only a Savior in waiting, He has come and accomplished His work. He is the actual Savior. He's the Savior who has executed His work preeminently upon the cross 
in making atonement for our sins, but he's also that Savior who is sanctifying us and bringing us more and more into the beauty of obedience and increasingly made holy like unto our Father in heaven. But you'll notice the text in some sense emphasizes this. He is the unseen Savior. This is a strange thing to consider. It's not as if Peter's saying he's invisible, as if he's become a ghost. It's rather that he has gone out of sight. He's no longer walking upon this world. And of course, the Bible opens this up for us when the disciples are gathered together and Christ ascends into heaven out of their sight. And they're gazing up, looking on where you can almost picture them squinting, covering their eyes, trying to see a bit more. And the angels appear and say, why do you continue to look? This same Jesus who has gone up will also come again. The point being, he's out of sight for now. He's gone to this heavenly realm and is seated right now. And what a mind-boggling truth that our own humanity in the person of Christ is seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. Christ in his human nature, albeit glorified, is reigning in the realm that is presently unseen. But notice, he is not unknown. He is not somehow unloved. He's merely unseen. Now, we can get at this a little bit by virtue of degrees with which we're familiar. So we can have a loved one go on a trip away from us, perhaps a state away, a country away, a continent away. The fact of them being unseen does not make them unloved. In fact, in some sense, it starts to strengthen our desires for them. And as the day comes closer for their uh, planned return, our affections are growing and mounting up. And you'll catch that theme through this epistle in this chapter alone, that Peter is pressing that he is going to come. He is going to return. He is going to be revealed. And yet in the meantime, he's cultivating all holy affections to remain upon him and to lead us unto holiness today. So it's not just, well, he's going to come back and when he comes back, then I'll get it together. But rather, this one who is unseen is one who is much loved now. It's not just that he will be loved, he is loved. So who is it that's loved? It's the unseen Savior. Now, secondly, Who is it that loves? Well, you'll see the text says that ye love in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So one thing we can say is that those who love this unseen Savior are those who believe. It's not just anybody And it's certainly not everybody. It's those who are believing. And notice the way that that word appears. It's not merely that they believed and have moved on to other things. It's not just that they had this crisis moment and now the crisis is lifted and they sort of return to other ways. There is 
a dominating of their souls in this exercise of faith. They are in the activity of believing. It can be true to say they believed someday in the past, but their faith is continuing. They're believing now. They're looking to Christ now. There can be crises of soul at times when someone starts to wonder, I don't know if I'm a believer. And when you start to peel it back, the motivating factor is they can't really determine if they know when they began believing. And so, well, I thought it was here, but there's so much that's happened since then that I'm not sure it was then. I don't know when it started or if it started or whatever else. Well, a simple question is to turn the focus to the present. Okay, maybe you can't determine when. Was there a crisis? Was there not? Was there a clear moment? Was there not? But the question rather is, are you now? Are you believing now? Peter doesn't just say, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now you see him not, you believe sometime back then. He's putting the focus upon their exercise of faith now. Now, what is this faith? Well, the scriptures give us much about what faith is. It, of course, is measured by what is revealed in God's word. So faith isn't the working up of a soul into some nothingness or some uh, uh, wished for thing. Notice they are believing in this one in whom Though now you see him not yet believing. So their faith is fixed upon Jesus Christ. So one thing we can say about what this faith is, is it's a faith that is focused on the person of Christ. It's not, as it were, um, undefinable. It's not just this ethereal nothingness of movement of our souls. It's not something that just sort of floats around and I think, well, I've got this feeling it must be faith. Faith looks upon and locks unto the person of Jesus Christ. Notice it's not that they're believing their election. They're not believing their experience. They're not believing something else. Their faith is upon the person of Jesus Christ. We can say when that is clear, there are many other things we can become assured of. But notice faith is fundamentally, saving faith is upon the person of Jesus Christ, whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing. You are believing him. You're believing Jesus Christ. This faith, in other words, as scripture elsewhere Uh, mentions is a true discerning of Christ as he's revealed in the Bible. It's not the dreaming up of what might Christ be or what is this person said Christ is. It's an understanding and a knowledge of Jesus as he has made himself known. Notice, for instance, in Acts in chapter 26, you see a, a picture of this. Acts chapter 26, and there at verse 18. It's Christ speaking to Paul as he's relating it. And notice Paul is being sent, verse 18, to open their eyes 
and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith, that is, in me. So here Christ is saying that faith is a turning from darkness, a turning from sin and Satan, the power of Satan, unto me, which requires opening of our eyes. You know, so children, you'll know this sometimes, maybe a parent has a surprise for you. They come home from work, they come home from somewhere, and they, they say, close your eyes, I've picked up something for you. And you close your eyes, and they say, I want you to guess what it is. And you have no clue what it is. You're saying things and so on. And they say, nope, not that, not this. And then they say, okay, open your eyes. And your eyes are opened. And then they hold it out and you see it. It's understandable now. You know what it is. Your eyes were closed and now they're open. Or perhaps it is otherwise the lights are turned off and the windows are covered up and there's not a little glow anywhere. And they lead you by the hand into a room and they say, okay, I want you to open your eyes. You open your eyes. You can't see anything because everything's dark. They say, okay, get ready. And then they turn the light on and everything can be seen because this is, of course, by our experience, how we learn about things. We see it. We understand it. Well, Christ isn't talking about the physical opening of eyes, but the spiritual from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. And so there is a true discerning of Christ as he is revealed. There's an understanding of who he is truly and what he is as he's made himself known. But there's more to faith. Of course, one may doctrinally be aware of who Christ is, but that is not saving faith. Saving faith includes trusting in him. Notice Ephesians in chapter 1, at verse 13, In whom also ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice in John's gospel, chapter 1, and there at verse 12, it speaks of those who have received Jesus Christ, John chapter 1 and verse 12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You'll notice receiving and believing are parallel. They receive him, they believe on his name. Now, this doesn't come by natural power. It doesn't flow to us by birth. It's not given by mere outward enjoyment of the covenant blessings. Notice verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The scriptures confirm faith is the sovereign gift and gracious gift of God. No man can work it up. No one can give it to us in this world. Only God can give it. And where he gives it, he gives with it an understanding of Christ as Savior and a trusting and receiving of him as our own Savior. This is what it means to believe. Now, why then does this faith lead us to love? Well, think of what has been said about faith. It's opening our eyes to whom? To Jesus Christ. 
Not just opening our understanding to say, yep, I got the doctrinal knowledge, but to perceive him as he's made known. It's a changing of our hearts in order to embrace him, to take him, to hold him as our own spiritually. In other words, there is by the gift of faith, the spiritual side and trust, a discerning of the beauty of Christ himself, of what he is, of who he is. Do you remember when the disciples are seeing and Christ is seeing all these people walk away and he turns and says, will you also go away? Where shall we go? To whom shall we go? We believe that thou art the Son of God. You are the one who has the words of eternal life. We've seen it. We know it. We believe it. We can't go anywhere else because of who you are. What fools we would be to turn from it and walk away. Why? Because when there's faith, there is a sight given, a spiritual sight given of the inestimable and unsurpassable beauty of Christ Jesus. Who is thy beloved? What is thy beloved more than another beloved? And the bride launches into this description full of rich expression regarding various perfections of Christ. And yet the summary is so perfect. Yea, he is altogether lovely. I could go on and on, but it would be in vain because I would never reach the end. There's never a point where I can say, well, you know, not that part. He's not perfect there. No, everything about Christ is perfectly lovely, beautiful, and exceedingly so. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. We sing in Psalm 45. This is what leads us to love him. There's a saying that we sometimes use to know him is to love him. That is, you know, among people in this world, even there are some that as you are brought into a more intimate acquaintance with that person, you get to know them. There's something appealing. And the more that you know them, the more that your affections are drawn to that person. And yet in this world, everyone however lovely and lovable, has their defects and their issues. And you get to know them a bit more and you say, well, I do love them. To know them is to love them. But I overlook this fault and that fault. But with Christ, there's no fault to overlook. Faith sees this and discerns this. And by God's grace, loves this. Faith also discerns not only the loveliness of Christ, but uh, the love of Christ. We talked about earlier who it is that's loved. It's the Savior. And all of the work that he's undertaken. And for whom? For us. And so it is, as John says, you know, we love him because he first loved us. And so as faith understands this and lays hold of it and embraces it, it's something that deepens our soul's affection for him. This is why the believer matures in love over time. Because faith never loses hold on Christ. Oh, there may be weakened moments. There may be uh, moments where we become distracted. We remove our eyes, as it were, for a season. 
And there are certainly many times when we're face to face with our own deficiencies and must cry out, I do believe, help thou mine unbelief. But the believer over years will be a believer who grows in a deeper love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ is changing? Not at all. But because the believer is discerning more the beauty and the wonder of Christ and his love. Brethren, we come then to a few points of application. Here is help as we examine ourselves in the days ahead. We wish to do as God instructs us, that we would examine ourselves and then eat and drink, lest we eat unworthily and eat and drink judgment unto ourselves. So here's one thing among others that we can examine. Do I have this faith? Not a different faith, but this faith. The biblical teaching on faith. Not do I just have something that sort of issues forth a statement, but do I have such faith as opens my eyes, as it were, to discern the beauty of Christ? Now, we don't wish to confuse faith and love. Faith receives, love reciprocates and gives. Love is a giving grace. So Christ loves us and he gave himself for us. We love him, which leads us to give ourselves in service to him. But we do wish to see that where there is faith that receives Christ, there will be love then that follows after and devotes us to Christ. So, in other words, it may be hard at times to say, well, how do I see faith? Because faith is looking to Christ. Well, one way we can see faith is by seeing the effect of faith. Love is an effect of faith. Is there love to Christ? So you can think of it this way. We might stumble upon someone who seems to be, you know, passed out. Are they dead? Are they alive? Well, is their heart beating? Well, there are several ways you can find out. You don't have to physically touch their heart or see their heart. You can feel for their pulse. And the pulse, if there, is evidence that the heart is beating. And similarly, we can say, is there faith? Well, we can discover faith by seeing, is there true love? Well, in other words, is there love to Christ? Because if there's love to Christ, there will be faith. So we can ask, does he satisfy my soul's longing? Whom have I in heaven but thee? Think of this expression, and on earth, whom do I desire beside thee? Is he that desire of our souls? He's called the desire of all nations. And indeed, we have to be Careful with this because the weak Christian can be quick to dismiss weak love and say, well, my love's not as strong as it ought to be. But the question can come, of course, how strong is it? But that's not the question right now. The question is, is there love for Christ? Is there a delight in Christ? Is there an acknowledgement of what he is? Can it be said to us or of us, that we find him 
altogether lovely. We might meet with, well, I say that and I sense that, but I don't do as I ought to do. That may be true and that may be an issue to work through. But is there a soul's delight in Christ? Not merely in acknowledging that, yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he's the savior. Yes, he did this. Yes, he's the only one and so on. But in other words, seeing those things is our soul drawn to him with delight. It delights my soul. Think of the way the psalmist expresses it, that we are, the psalm expresses it, to delight ourselves in God. That's love. Do we delight ourselves in Christ? Now, we can go further because the scriptures are quite clear where there is love there will be obedience. So John makes that plain. You'll even see it in this epistle as Peter's working through these thoughts. He doesn't say it as explicitly here, but you'll notice that he's presenting something. You see him not, but you believe and you love him and so on. And therefore, notice verse 14, as obedient children, now you're to be holy in all manner of conversation. What's he saying? He's saying those who love will love his will. So if we love God, we'll love what he says. We'll love his promises, of course. We'll love the historical record of his works. Oh, how we delight to reflect upon this. We praise God and we rejoice to think upon his mighty works. But if there's love, there will be love to his will. To God the Father, his will as children. To Christ the Son, to his will as our husband. And so if we're asking ourselves, do I love Christ? We should look and ask the question, do I love his holy will? If you love me, he says, keep my commandments. Now, it will, of course, prick our conscience because we'll be quite aware, or we should be aware, that there are commandments that we have not kept as we ought. The question then to ask is, what's the effect of that? Does it hit you with carelessness? Well, who cares? Everybody does such things. Or does it hit you with conviction? Not legal conviction, but gracious evangelical conviction that says, The one whom I love, I have ignored his will. Oh, what foolishness this is. You can see a picture of it in Song of Solomon chapter 5. Here's the bride, she's slothful, Christ is drawing near, and she says, listen, not now. And so then she hears his voice. She's quickened. She comes and notice the expression. Now her hands are dripping with myrrh. There's grace being exercised. She's quickened and she opens the door. But her beloved has left. And she's reflecting upon her sloth. And she goes seeking him. Well, there's something there for us. If we love his will, but we discover that we've disobeyed it, what will it do to us? It will draw us to seek Christ. The legal heart may somehow reform and say, well, I'm going to get it right this time. The evangelical heart goes to Christ to seek out his grace, not to seek out something, as it were, that will get him past obedience, 
but seeking out Christ who will enable him unto obedience. So when it is we discover we've not kept his will, if we love Christ, it will lead us to him to ask his forgiveness, as we've seen on the Sabbath evenings with Psalm 51, but also to ask his grace and fellowship to strengthen us unto obedience. Do I have faith or do I have love? Am I willing to endure trials for him? It's amazing what mothers will endure out of love to their children. It's amazing what fathers will endure as well and others, spouses for spouses and friends for friends. Think of how Christ says to his disciples that I call you friends. And he testifies that it is one who lays down his life for another. There's love there in that sacrificial giving. Well, when it is the believer loves Christ, the believer will persevere in the midst of trials. Not perfectly. There will be failures and sins. And yet, by God's grace preserved, the believer will persevere, being restored, as was Peter himself, who denied Christ three times. And yet Christ, whom he loved, returned and restored him. And Peter pressed on in the midst of trials. There are many other things we can say in helping to examine ourselves, but brethren, consider furthermore what a gift God gives in giving faith. We can be short-sighted to think of faith and somehow piecemeal as one isolated thing, but the scriptures show us that faith is this opening, as it were, of a grand treasury of riches. When it is that faith is given, faith then receives Christ the Savior. Were that all, if we could say that, that would be infinite for us and our rejoicing. But with Christ, we gain salvation. All the things that we've seen and elsewhere are aware of in the scriptures. And so faith is given. It's this uh, empty hand of soul, but placed in that emptiness is Christ himself. And in having Christ himself, we have the Savior and all salvation by him. That which he's accomplished is credited to us. His righteousness is ours. His death is as our death. His resurrection is the surety of our resurrection. His going away from us is met with this assurance that if he goes, he goes to prepare a place for us. And if he's doing that, he'll come again. All of these blessings bound up in the giving to us of faith, which embraces Christ. Faith opens our eyes to behold Christ, who is truly beautiful. Children, imagine this for a moment. If there were a world wherein people stared at refuse and waste and rotten corpses and delighted in it, celebrated it, and said, look, at the beauty of all of this decay. Look at the beauty of all of this disorientation, this waste, this stench, this refuse, all of it. And they're celebrating it. Well, you and your sanity would look and say, what is going on? Brethren, that's what the world is doing spiritually in its sin. 
It's looking at all of the refuse and waste and disorientation and disjointment and all of the brokenness and celebrates it until God opens the heart and gives grace and opens the eyes. And then it's as if they come to themselves and they look and they wonder, what is this filth that I've celebrated? What is this wickedness that I've delighted in? And they hear the voice of one truly noble, truly lovely, truly beautiful, who comes to save. And they look upon him and they see none so lovely. And they flee to him and embrace him and are cleansed from all of their wickedness. While the howling and the uh, wickedness prevails around them. Yet they find that they have discovered the one who is truly beautiful. And this is because of the gift of God's grace giving faith. We're rescued from the brokenness of celebrating misery and rebellion and brought to rejoice in the beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, of course, leads, as the text testifies, unto the source of unspeakable joy and rejoicing. You don't have time to go into that, but you'll notice it, that Peter testifies, whom yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, brethren, imagine this for a moment, that one were to go to a worldling and say, you're going to suffer in a spirit of heaviness through manifold temptations, and yet you're going to have a cause to rejoice. The world can't make sense of that. The Christian can. It's an enigma and a riddle with a solution to the Christian. Because the manifold temptations, verse 6, which brings about heaviness for a season, is yet testing our faith which has laid hold of Christ and the Christian in the midst of the furnace has discovered a cause for rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory. What is it? It's Christ. It's no wonder that the Bible gives us that beautiful image of this when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace and they're walking around in the midst of it And the king looks in and says, was it not that we threw three in there? But I see a fourth. The Son of God is there. And what are they doing? They aren't complaining. Look what we've done. You know, here it is. We stood up. We put it to the king. And now we're suffering. No, they're fellowshipping in the fire with Christ. And brethren, when there is faith, there is the opening of our hearts to a more heavenly cause for joy, which in this life is known by degree, but in the life to come will be known with perfection. And how is it that this joy is open to us? It is open to us by God's gracious gift of faith. Brethren, here is then what we ought to seek to increase among us. 
because it will cause us more fully to discern the beauty and work and the person of Christ. And in doing so, it will lead us more to love and obey His uh, commandments and will, and it will support us in the midst of the heaviest and worst trials in this life because we know Him who has gone to prepare a place for us and shall indeed come again that we would receive the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. Well, as the Lord gives us opportunity, may He grant us grace to examine ourselves and whatever weaknesses and deficiencies in our faith May it be that he directs us unto Christ, that he would give and strengthen and multiply, that we might come and rejoice in him who is unseen by the means of grace he supplies. Would you stand with me for prayer?